Bob's Red Mill is proud to bring you modernist breadcrumbs. Love learning about food? Get delicious recipes, valuable coupons, and more discussions of our very favorite ingredients at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, and this is Modernist Breadcrumbs. There is no such thing as a bread plant. Yes, there are breadfruit trees all over Oceania, the Caribbean, and South America, which flower into mulberries and jackfruit. But wheat, the main source of bread flour, is actually a grass cultivated for its seed. Over half a billion acres around the globe grow some sort of wheat as a food crop. That's bigger than the whole country of Mexico. The size of a single seed is less than half a gram, yet within that kernel is a whole world of possibilities. First, let's find out how grain becomes flour and why we as humans ever sought to cultivate bread in the first place. We start at the seed, the grain that is, with Nathan Mervold, founder of The Cooking Lab and co-author of Modernist Bread, The great thing about grain is it forms a dry, hard little package quite naturally, which can keep for years. Uh, That's important to the plant because it may be years before there's the right rain conditions and other things for for it to sprout. Now, it's a problem for us humans because our teeth really can't break those things. So what we wind up doing is grinding it. And the technology for grinding has evolved enormously, and that's gone part and parcel with creating bread. Chew on this. Many of us yearn for a crusty loaf, but it was our ability to chew said bread that made us human. What we survived on, well, that's a different story. And that begins with our agrarian nature, as stated by Stephen Jones, the director of the Bread Lab at Washington State University. He has a PhD in genetics and is an accredited wheat breeder. Our role as plant breeders are to to utilize these older grains, ancient grains, heirlooms, whatever you want to call them, and cross them to our more modern types to bring the price point down of these types of things. So, so we don't agree that, that um, there's that much value in an ancient grain that it's going to price people out of the accessibility to those grains because they just don't yield very much. So, so we strive to bring yields up for the farmer. We think it's the best and most sustainable use of the ground of those farms. And then if we can do it 
in a manner that maintains the flavor, the history, the tradition, and the nutritional value and the functionality of these grains, then all the better. But but our job really as plant breeders are to improve, not to just hold things the way they were and the way they are. So so again, we we you know in our field this year we had wheats that go back to the 1500s. Um, we also have wild relatives that that go back tens of thousands of years. So I don't know how ancient people want to go, but um, we we grow them, but we utilize them in a way as breeders to to pull them forward. So it's nothing against those, but really um, I don't I don't think there's much place for a nineteen dollar loaf of bread because something's yielding you know a couple hundred pounds per acre as opposed to several thousand. Peter Reinhardt, one of the most well-respected baking educators in the country, agrees that looking forward doesn't mean taking a blind eye to the past. As a present-day apostle of bread baking, his books, like The Bread Baker's Apprentice, preach modern-day grain utilization, understanding that ancient grains may be antiquated to the novice baker, but could be benefaction for the more advanced. The properties themselves, especially like the ancient grains, the emmers and the einkorns and all, they don't have the same hearty protein structure that the modern wheat has. So the modern wheat, one of the reasons why it's so um, useful and so functional is that it forms a very strong gluten network that makes it possible to almost make foolproof bread. You know, you can, you don't have to know everything there's about bread to be able to make a good bread. And you can do it in bulk and you can do it in machines that beat it up pretty good. Um, these ancient grains are not only harder to grow because they don't yield as much per acre, uh, but they also don't bond in the same way. They may have a weaker uh, gluten or protein structure so that you might not get the loft uh, and the height and the air aeration that you might get with a, a stronger protein flour. But they have these flavors that you can't get in the other grains, so there's a trade-off. And so then you have to figure out, okay, how can I get more more function out of this flour if it's not uh, inherently as strong as the other one? And so you use your baker's trick. You use pre-ferments and, and uh, additional water and a lot of folding of the doughs in ways to uh, envelop that water so that when, the, when it bakes, it will open the dough up into larger uh, crumb structures. Um, it's, all, it's all about the craft again. So... Grain is got a lot of great properties as food. It also has a couple of properties that are pretty bad as food. The thing that's wonderful about grain is that it's produced in large quantities by a set of grasses. And grasses are very resilient plants. They kind of expect that there's going to be animals eating them all the time. Yet they keep growing back. That's one of the great things about grass is that it'll grow back after you uh, chop most of it off. The downside is, of course, that means you have to keep mowing your lawn over and over again. And they produce the seeds in enormous volume. But there's a problem. The seeds are also made to overwinter. So when the plant is done making a seed of grain, it's a hard, dry little thing. Now, that's both an opportunity and a challenge. The opportunity is it keeps. And one of the biggest problems for our ancestors was how the hell do you have food reliably throughout the year? Because wild foods that you are harvesting may not be available. And it doesn't take more than a few weeks. If you say, well, hey, this is really good for 40 weeks of the year, you'll starve to death in that other 12 weeks. (laughs) 
<laughs> and of course, there's plenty of places that people live where there's no food for even large areas because winter or drought or some other condition is really harsh. You may have heard of hard winter wheat. You know, the ones with higher gluten content than other wheats? Well, their seed is optimal for areas which deal with dormant winters. They're used routinely both as cover crop and cash crop because they're easy to manage while still providing a good yield. All flowers have their own perils, though it's more about the conditions of their biological makeup which merit the breads they aspire to be. Well, one way, one way to look at, at a wheat kernel is that kernel does not want to be made into a baguette. That wheat kernel wants to be made into a plant. So it wants to, it wants, like all seeds, if we can, if we can, you know, give some human thought to them, they, they want to, biologically, their goal is to make a new plant. So to, so to do that, as a seed is wedded, in this case, a small grain like wheat or barley, as it's wetted, it begins a germination process or a sprouting process. And that, that releases certain things that, that go in, into the seed itself and allow it to start the process of growth. Those, the main steps would be amylases, which take the starch, which is the main, if you look at the flour in a kernel of wheat, it's basically starch and protein. The starch is there, and then the protein is, or the glutenins and glidins, which make up the gluten. So the amylases will go in there, and they will start converting the starch to sugar. And that sugar is going to be energy for the growing seed. The other enzymes, proteases, are going to go in and start working on the gluten. And they're going to break that up into amino acids, which are the chain, they form the links on the chain of a, of a protein. You're also going to have phytase, which is another enzyme. So all these are enzymes. The phytases will go in and, and break up the things that are holding the iron and the zinc and the, the other micronutrients. If all the starch is converted to sugar and all the gluten is broken down to amino acids, you can't really bake with that anymore. So, so you really have to control during the sprouting process how far you go in the process. Veteran food writer and journalist Maria Speck knows a thing or two about those ancient grains. She's the author of Simply Ancient Grains and Ancient Grains for Modern Meals. Raised in Germany and Greece, Maria has a lifelong passion for whole grain foods. But what is a whole grain anyway? The whole grain is basically comprised of like essentially three parts, right? Like the, the nutrient-rich germ where the grain sprouts. Then you have that starchy body, which is what's used in all-purpose flour. And then you have that fiber-rich um, bran layer, right? And so when we have white flour, the fiber-rich bran layer and the germ are removed, and um, you have nothing but starch. And so, so, you know, I think people are understanding that, forget about, you know, flavor and all of these things that I'm talking about, that that just doesn't add anything to, you know, your diet. Whole or otherwise, there is no singular generic grain. When you look out upon a field of amber waves, there's likely an abundance of varietals. 
1894, we had our first wheat breeder at the university, and, and basically he started making he started making crosses and introducing new varieties of wheat to the Pacific Northwest, and and that's that's how plant breeding works. Is is there's you you look for variation, and then you capture that variation and make it available to to farmers and and people that have an interest in it. So that can be done by by searching, literally searching the globe for for important traits or varieties that may work in your region. The the next step then is is to if those work directly, you can do that and just start growing those. Another uh, step then of, of more uh, uh, development would be to actually make a cross and you find two parents that have traits that you like, whether that's for the farmer or for the baker or the miller or ideally all those people. We've whitewashed your idea of flower so far, but really grains come in a vibrant spectrum of colors. So I mentioned uh, black rice, right, which turns purple. I mean, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Then you have... Um, for example, golden millet, which is now becoming more trending because it's gluten-free. And so that's just a, also a beautiful, simple, quick-cooking grain um, that's, that's long been, you know, regarded just like a bird food. <laughs> and people realize how, how wonderful it is now, you know, because it cooks really fast. It's great for, for busy weeknights. And and it's also very versatile. And then you have another, an ancient wheat called kamut, which has these long bronze, beautiful bronze-colored kernels that um, that um, have a rich, you know, you could call it a buttery flavor. Um, that that's just also really wonderful and can be used in recipes, you know, to highlight again the character of the grain. Um, to talk about flavor of grains, other examples of flavors, obviously you're familiar, you know, most of us eat or are familiar with rolled oats, also whole oats. They have like a natural sweetness, which is really beautiful. That's why they're also used so much in baking, you know, because of that natural sweetness. Then, of course, buckwheat you've had probably in pancakes has this, this deep earthiness. Um, that I cherish. And then another trending grain right now, you know, for chefs is like frike. It has this, this smokiness. It's um, typically a durum wheat, um, and uh, but it's harvested, you know, and it's milk, milky, like it's, it's basically harvested when it's still raw. And then it's parched and dried, and then you get this, you know, um, uh, beautiful smokiness that basically on a on a weeknight you throw some freaky into your soup, and you have this whole new dimension of flavor in your soup, right? Because it gives a nice smokiness, um, which is wonderful. In Germany, we have this thing called Grünkern, made from spelt. So and. Um, so it's it's traditionally it's it's another great um addition you know flavor addition to your kitchen and then a trendy one that I haven't mentioned at all is teff which I love because it is it's a, it's the smallest of all grains 
It's dark and makes a beautiful polenta. It's also, again, like stunning, dark, uh, creamy polenta that you can use in dinner, quick dinner. It's really fairly easy to make, also 15, 20 minutes at the side. And it has a caramelly sweetness, a molasses, aroma of molasses, that if you pair that, you know, with something that is like I paired in my new book, um, uh, I pair it with uh, dandelions, which have these, it's a bitter green, right? So you have that sweetness of the, you know, teff polenta, the natural sweetness, and then paired with the bitter greens uh, that are dandelions, for example. It's just an, another example, right, how the character of the grain, you know, the flavors can really highlight and like make your dinner just so much more tasty. So, <laughs> So that's, um, yeah, that's that's what I want, you know, people to get, to really um, get at how tasty they are versus healthy. Because, you know, I don't know how it is for you. If someone gives me a healthy food, I'm like, okay, and now what? Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, at the most, you'll eat it once because you're kind of curious what they've given you. It's healthy. And you're like, okay, we all want to be healthy. But if it doesn't taste good, good luck, I always say so. So, you know, and that's where I, you know, where I come back to the early, you know, that I was lucky because I just never thought about it as healthy. I mean, these breads in Germany, they were part of what we ate every day. Ultimately, this kind of, you know, realizing that, you know, we need to really talk differently about grains. We need to talk about their texture. Obviously, that's one, you know, the range of textures they bring to our table, the range of colors they bring to our table, and, of course, the flavors. I mean, grains have distinct flavors, which is, you know, people often, you know, don't, don't even think about that. Dan Leder, owner of the Breadalone Bakery in upstate New York, was a pioneer in the artisan baking world back in the 70s and 80s. He explains how the grain belt of the Midwest became the bread basket we know today. So when, uh, in the 1890s, a bunch of Ukrainians uh, made it to Kansas, mm-hmm. and they carried in the lining of their jackets uh, a type of wheat called red turkey. And red turkey became, you know, between like 1900 and 1920, red turkey became one of the primary uh, wheat varieties grown in central Kansas. It happens to be a very tall wheat, about about three and a half feet tall. Okay. Hmm. So if, if you look at basically the wheat revolution began in the Midwest, you know, around World War One, and as... As, as the industrial age kind of set in and farmers could grow wheat much more efficiently and productively in the Midwest than they could here. And, they, of course, they were building bigger mills. Um, the, the wheat industry here gradually died out because they, people were able to get uh, a higher quality, more consistent product at a lower price from the Midwest. Grains empower farmers, and growing grains that are more gentle on the earth embolden the land by not depleting the soil. These grains are therefore more sustainable in the whole scheme of bread. Glenn Roberts of Anson Mills calls this symbiosis a perfect acre, perfect loaf. With any great seeds, their genome structure is inherent. In order for them to function at their best, they have to be grown in the right place. 
So in the end, it really starts from the ground up. A lot of those scientists now uh, that were doing uh, plant breeding and uh, crop improvement have been replaced with people that do uh, genetics. That's Jeff Zimmerman of Hayden Flour Mills. The Zimmerman family is playing a huge role in reviving the grain growing and milling culture in Arizona. Named after Charles Trumbull Hayden, who established his mill on the river in Phoenix in 1874, Hayden Flour Mills is restoring the early methods of milling and varieties of grain that once flourished in the Southwest. So that, that's where the science is headed, at least at a university level. Um, and, and so they're bringing people in that can make the wheat do things that it's not capable with traditional plant breeding and selection technologies up to this point. After the 1950s, yeah, Norman Borlaug and the whole great story about the Green Revolution and how they increased the yield of wheat. I mean, our, our wheat will yield 1,800 to 2,200 pounds per acre. Um, people listening to the broadcast will think in terms of bushels or hundredweight, but in the Southwest, we talk about pounds. And um, industrial grain will yield um, around 6,000 to 6,500 pounds per acre. Increasingly, we see across the U.S., we see, you know, grains grown again in areas of the U.S. outside of the Midwestern farm belt, you know, that farmers grow local grains, you know, from wheat, barley, rye, triticale, in areas where they've been long abundant. For example, in states, you've, you know, Maine, Massachusetts, Vermont, upstate New York, Arizona, California, Washington State, South Carolina. I mean, you have, you have, you know, beautiful local grains coming up. And with those also what we see, you know, we see increasingly, uh, you know, bakers in, you know, towns that look for these local grains because they are not only, you know, very tasty, but they're also supremely fresh, you know. So I always say, you know, it's similar to when you buy, you know, a supermarket tomato versus a farmer's market tomato. Also in grains, you have freshness. And I had never actually understood that until, and, and that's, you know, really related because grains and beans, another staple, right? My Greek mom, she would always carry dried beans from Greece to Germany when where we met. And I would say, mom, why are you carrying beans in your suitcase? I mean, it seemed so absurd, right? To me, it seems like we can buy dried beans in Germany. And she said, they're old. And I'm like, what do you mean by old? They're dried, mom. <laughs> And so now, of course, I have since learned, right, myself, through local grain culture here in Massachusetts, we have local grain growers, how fresh local grains are, how delicious they are. People might be surprised that this is in Phoenix. We're desert. And what, what could be in Phoenix but rattlesnakes, uh, scorpions, and heel monsters, and swirl cacti? Uh, but the... the um, the crazy thing about it is I actually bought into that. And as we've made our first search for grain to mill, I went up to the Pacific Northwest to a conference called the Needing Conference. It was a corollary to another conference that was held in Maine, and then they held one in uh, Washington State. And there I met uh, Steve Jones, not knowing anything about him, not knowing the depth of what he's done and the contribution that he's made to uh, wheat. 
And I go, hey, you know, Steve Jones, uh, you, you know any farmers up here I can buy wheat from? I want to mill it down in, I, I, I want to mill it. He goes, where are you from? I go, from Arizona. He goes, why are you here? I go, well, uh, I heard you guys are growing wheat, and I thought I could find some farmers and buy it. He says, you know the best wheat in the world is grown in Arizona. And it, and it was pretty kind of embarrassing, right? Uh, but then on the other hand, it was like, really? Really? And it turns out that actually our climate is the best climate uh, to grow grains in. It's dry. Uh, we grow them during the winter. It's a good growing season. And actually, we're recognized for the quality of our wheat by the fact that um, it's mostly exported. Our pasta variety of wheat is 90% of the crop is shipped to uh, Italy for pasta manufacturing. With exceptional pasta, you need an extraordinary sauce. So why wouldn't you consider grain in the same way as the ingredients of a pomodoro? It's not like picking a tomato. You know, you pick a tomato and you can eat it. You grow grain, you have to harvest it. You have to clean it. Um, You have to clean it to food grade standards. Um, All that infrastructure has to be in place. You have to have a very special machine for harvesting it. Um, And so those things went large scale. So the small scale equipment didn't exist. And then um, the people that we relied upon to do our grain cleaning in the first uh, four years, they um, went out of business or could no longer do things at small scale. So uh, we had to dial back our production. And now we're uh, building a new facility. We'll have state-of-the-art FDA, USDA approved processing capability. And uh, we'll be able to ramp back up to include more farmers in our program. Emma Zimmerman. Jeff's daughter works at Hayden Flour Mills as well. No, that question and just juxtaposition is like a theme throughout a lot of what we do because we are reviving an old grain, um, going back to a lot of old growing methods, things, knowledge that's been lost, um, but we aren't, you know, recreating. We're not doing like a living history museum. Um, so, um, you know, when we look at the story, when we read the story of Charles Hayden, a lot of what we did was like inspired from that. So um, things like using solar power on our mill um, in parallel to his water power, um, still using a stone mill, but we're going to use like the latest technology in stone milling. Um, and, you know, so kind of making a hybrid of these things, like um, as romantic as it is to be like, oh, it's heritage grains, you know, and we farm with horses and all these things like um the point is for us, the flavor, um, the stories of these grains and to keep the integrity of that. And um, if we can then pair that with um, the technology that's available very cheaply right now and get that to a lot of people, um, that's worth doing. And it is it's just so fun for me too. Strong relationships between bakers, millers and farmers guarantee success from field to flower. Nikki Giusto, a fourth-generation miller and baker, works to develop those threads in his role at the Central Milling Company in Utah. It starts out with grain selection, um, a, a grain identifier, or excuse me, a variety identification. Okay, this is an awesome variety. We want to grow this, so we'll bring this variety. Once that's established and identified, we'll bring that to a farmer that we think 
can grow this variety um, to, to give that variety justice, but also to yield enough for him so he can pay his bills. You know what I mean? Um, uh, so we'll, variety selection to the farmer and then harvest time. Uh, we'll bring that into the mill, clean it, um, and then mill it into uh, a, a variety of flour. But before we mill it into flour, we'll try to identify a market for it. We'll say, okay, is this is this grain best served as a, an, a white flour or a high extraction flour or 100% whole wheat flour? Where 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 does it shine? Where is its best application? And then we'll talk to bakers about it, mill down some samples, give it to the baker, and then. We'll take it back and then uh, uh, mill quantity of it and then distribute it out. Um, so variety selection, growth, um, a market identification, mill it, and then uh, bring it to the bakeries. Thanks to his involvement in that process, Nikki has a few wheat varieties that he really loathes. Some of them are old and some of them are new. Um, uh, my favorite and one we've been growing for uh, almost a decade now is Yokora Rojo. Um, yeah, we grow that, you know, exclusively in California and it's a, uh, it's a spring variety of wheat that we grow on a winter cycle, um, to yield more flavor out of the grain. Um, one of the ones I, one of my favorites always on top of my list, um, Rouge de Bordeaux, um, which is considered a soft red wheat, but feels more like a spring, um, like a hard red spring, but it's incredibly extensible. I love that variety a lot. It's incredibly yellow um, and works really well in lower ash flowers. Um, I really like that variety. Um, what ones do I like? A promontory, uh, which is a... a a variety of winter wheat that grows around our mill. Uh, we're really close to Promontory, Utah, where they uh, laid the golden spike and connected the, the railroads. Um, and they named a wheat variety after it years ago. So it's a, it's a much, much older variety um, that's incredibly yellow in color and just has rip and flavor characteristics. Um, and those are probably my top three. The Yakora, Rouge de Bordeaux, and, um, and Promontory. If diversity is the spice of life, it could very well be considered the blend of wheats used in bread baking. In 1997, Mark Versenberg opened the Breadline, a restaurant a block from the White House that made the bread based foods that are traditional to many cultures. In the 60s, he worked for the government during the Kennedy administration as an intern in the U.S. Department of Labor. Decades after, and with humility, he started a career in bread, which, unlike politics, provided a palatable way for Furstenberg to embed himself into the general public. Consider this a teaser for episode five as well, Against the Grain, in which we'll delve more deeply into the politics of bread and flour, the basis for many international revolutions. The neighbors who buy our breads are people who want whole grain breads in the first place. Certainly, it's true that the baguette we make is um, is the best I've made, and it's delicious, and it is the most recognizable bread, and therefore the highest volume bread. But our bread repertoire, our bread menu, is 
composed far more of whole grain breads than it is of white breads. And we and people appreciate a, a bread made with teff and rye, or, or a multigrain bread that is that is very coarse and chewy. Um, I don't. I I can't think of myself as changing the American landscape. Uh, we're just we're just a bakery trying to do the best work we can and nudging people toward more whole grains because I think that's an imp- I think that's both an imperative of health but also because I think whole grain breads are just more interesting. We'll let you chew on that and we'll be right back with more modernist breadcrumbs. When embarking on a baking project, choosing your flour is an important first step. White flour will make for a lighter and fluffier dough, but whole wheat flour will give you more vitamins, minerals, and often, more flavor. So, how do you get the best of both worlds? One option is to add more water and knead the dough for a bit longer to counteract the heaviness of a whole wheat flour. Another is to add butter or oil to the recipe to help it rise and get it closer to that light, fluffy texture. But all whole wheat flours are not created equal. A true whole wheat retains 100% of the original grain. At Bob's Red Mill, when 100 pounds of whole wheat berries go into the mill, 100 pounds of whole wheat flour comes out in all of its nutritional glory. To learn more about Bob's Red Mill's extensive line of whole grain products, as well as grab some delicious recipes and great coupon offers, head to bobsredmill.com podcast. Bob's Red Mill, believers in whole grain foods for every meal of the day. Let's call this section Nose to the Grindstone, the story of how grain becomes flour through a series of grinding steps. Grist mills sprinkled throughout the world each contribute to a field's terroir and a baker's bounty. Jason Bond owns Bondier, a cozy 28-seat farmhouse-style restaurant in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he's steadfast about tracing the roots of the flour he's baking with. I'd been making bread in restaurants for you know, 10 years before that, so I'd, it wasn't the first shot at making sourdough, but, but I wanted a program that reflected you know, our view of food and cooking. And so uh, you know, we started offering three breads. One was just... Well, the first step, of course, was finding um, grains from known sources, which we hadn't been able to do before. There's there's grist mills all over the place, but, you know, especially here in New England, but but very few of them actually knew where the grains were coming from. It was always, you know, brought in from somewhere in Kansas or Nebraska or whatever. And so, you know, like Four Star Farm starting up their grain program. About the same time we opened Bondier was really awesome, and Main Grain since then, and Caden Mills in Arizona. We've started working with a little bit, so you know, we're starting to meet more and more people who actually grow grains and uh, stone mill them if we want them to. Um, you know, a lot we grow ourselves, but you know, it's kind of like starting a good charcuterie program. You know. 20 years ago, it's the same thing. It's like the first step was to find a good pig, which was really hard back then. So, 
A fine pig is like grand grain structure. You can't separate the stock from the sow, but you can separate the bran in the milling process. So the bran is this tough leathery layer that's on the outside. The inside is called the endosperm, and the other key part is the germ. The germ is basically part of the embryo of the plant, and that's the only part of the grain that has a substantial amount of fat in it. That's important because it can go rancid. That's why they keep flaxseed oil in the fridge at the health food store, and wheat germ is kept the same way unless it's heat treated. So mostly what we wind up eating is either the bran or the endosperm. Now, the bran is like 15% by weight uh, of, the, uh, of the kernel. You may think of bread as soft and chewy, but grains have a hard shell, and it took early milling practices to make them more digestible. So what type of technology gave us the ability to eat bread? The early cultures such as the Anasazi had terrible teeth wear. Not from failing to brush or floss, because their cornmeal was, not only was it corn grits, but it was stone grits too, because <laughs> there was stone in there. Now, to make this more efficient, the Romans invented the rotary quern. In the rotary quern, you have a cone-shaped stone. Then on top of that, you've got a cap, which also fits the cone. You can put grain down the middle, and it will feed in, and then you rotate that. And as you rotate it, it grinds the grain. The great thing about the rotary motion is you could then have, for example, a donkey hitched to it walking in a circle. Not a terribly exciting thing for the donkey, but boy, it made a lot of flour. The, uh, the next step up was to have two millstones that were mounted close together, big flat round stones that would uh, rotate, and there the rotation started being provided by water. The Romans had water-driven mills, as did people all the way up into the 19th century. Finding a place where water is falling or going through a height difference allowed you to then make a water wheel that had a bunch of paddles so that the motion and the falling of the water would turn it. And then those could turn this big wheel. Well, this was a fundamental fixture in almost every Western society for several thousand years. Though there have been improvements along the way, sometimes it's hard to improve on tradition. Bob Moore of Bob's Red Mill founded his company on those traditional milling methods. To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. The stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire. Either the top stone or the bottom stone turned, just one stone. Uh, they are very parallel to each other because the grain has to be ground between them. They have a configuration that's cut with, with cutters. Uh, they've had 
cutters to cut stones since early Egyptian times. So that's not any new technology. And the way that you form it makes a difference as to how fast it grinds, how fine it grinds, as well as the speed that you turn it. Uh, and all these factors, it's all fairly simple and rudimentary. There are some innovations which separate the likes of Bob's milling processes from our ancient ancestors. What's it like to mix old and new? That's an interesting, interesting one because, you know, most people, like, are turning to the old, right? You know, or they were, like, five years ago, everybody's like, I want it done the old way. I just want a stone mill to mill my flour, and that's it. But now they're realizing that, you know, like, technology needs to be involved in that. Um, and so they're adding, you know, some sifters to it. And then they're trying to control the speed of the stones to minimize starch damage and heat generation during the milling. So they're adding all these equipments to these um, antiquated, not antiquated, but older ways of stone milling, I should say. Um, and so that's all happening right now, right? But this is all stuff that was happening in the late 1800s when stone milling was converting over to roller milling. You know, people were looking for more efficient ways to make the grain and to offer diversity. So this all happened to our mills back in the 1890s and 1900s. You know, we've converted from stone to roller mill to make flour milling more efficient, to make it less destructive to the wheat kernel, and um, uh, to mill slower and cooler. Um, and now that, that same thing is kind of happening again. You know, like history repeats itself. Pretty much the mills were the same for at least 1,000 years, maybe 2,000 years, until Oliver Evans comes along. Oliver Evans uh, was an American inventor. He got one of the first patents uh, ever issued by the uh, patent office. In those days, patents were signed by both George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, and L. Evans made a robotic mill. Now, it sounds crazy to say that it's robotic, given that it was in the late 1700s, but effectively it was. His mill uh, had conveyor belts and little hoppers and lots of gears, and it would allow you to pour grain in one end, have the grain come through, get milled once, separate it out, milled a second time, all without changing stuff and people carrying stuff upstairs or anything else. And it was a simple set of inventions, but it radically changed milling. However, as with any breadwinning innovation, there are going to be unforeseen dangers. Sometimes there was tragedy. Uh, these mills were full of conveyors. Uh, they make the Evans mill look just tiny by comparison. Um, when you drive your whole mill from one source, one big power source, that means you've got to have belts and cogs and, and all kinds of things to carry that power all over the building. So people would get their hands and arms caught in it. And uh, it wound up making... Uh, and amputations and things like that, a specialty of the Mayo Clinic, which had started not that long uh, uh, 
previously um, not that far from Minneapolis. Um, it also led to some explosions. Uh, flour uh, is flammable. And any flammable thing that you put into powder and you puff it up into the air, if a spark hits it, kaboom. Uh, so there was an enormous explosion in the late 19th century that completely destroyed one of the mills. And I'm not quite sure why, but they never rebuilt that mill. They built mills all around it. Uh, and it is now the world's only museum dedicated to flour milling, by God. Um, and it's awesome because you can take a picture of the uh, Mississippi uh, River uh, shore there in, in that side of Minneapolis, and you can compare it to the um, engravings that were made in the newspaper after the explosion, and it's like exactly the same. Even though milling proved to be a risky business, it caught on fast. These days, however, we are only just rediscovering the importance of homegrown grains. When we started, there, was no, there were no local grains. I mean, so, like, if I, I, I shouldn't say that. In the early days, there was a mill called Clear Flower, Bake, Clear Flower Mill, which was in Syracuse. And we could buy some local things from then, but it was always a mix of, like, some local with some stuff from the Midwest. Uh, and there was a mill up in Syracuse, not Syracuse, in the, up near Champlain, uh, Champlain Valley Milling. I think he started in the 90s, and he always had a little bit, but the, the local side of flour hasn't become a reality until, let's say, the last five years. I, I see, you know, I see the bread appetite changing a lot. I mean, certainly... Uh, you see more darker whole grain breads available in certain specialty markets that you didn't before. Um, I, I think that, you know, although there's a lot of headlines about local grains, if you actually look at the production, it's a, it's a very, very small number. I mean, uh, I spoke to Greg from Farmer Ground Flour uh, this week uh, up in Syracuse, and I mean, he only grinds maybe 5,000 pounds of flour a day. Um, and, you know, there's a mill in Pennsylvania called Small Valley Milling. Uh, I'm not sure how much they grind a day. Um, uh, there's a mill in Canada now called Menuri Milanese that uses some local and some, you know, they're growing a lot of uh, wheat in eastern Quebec. Um, but it's still the, the local stuff is maybe 15% of what they blend in from the Midwest. Hmm. Um, but it's changing. It, it, it's, it's definitely changing. And I think that it will continue to change. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, New York State or Vermont or, you know, Pennsylvania is ever going to become the grain-growing region that it was when there were hundreds of mills up and down the East Coast. Hmm. But but I, I definitely see a lot of energy put into it. That energy is humming in mills around the country and has caught the attention of Nikki Giusto on the West Coast as well. I definitely see it, you know, becoming more localized again. Um, you know, our country has been in a uh, progression of shutting down flour mills for quite a few years. Um, as larger companies consolidate, um, you know, certain mills are shut down. 
basically for, you know, monopoly-related reasons and uh, just economics and, you know, business reasons. Um, but there is the grassroots side of things, the other side of the coin that's starting to grow and grow in power as well, grow knowledge and grow in power and wanting a more localized grain economy. Um, so I definitely see more smaller mills opening up in the future that cater to uh, more regional varieties of grain uh, that are more appropriate to uh, the artisan bakers for that region. It's something that used to be very tight and is now becoming tight again, but um, there was, you know, decades where, you know, the, there was a miller kind of controlled things, you know, he just bought wheat that milled best and then provided one or two types of flour for the baker to use. You know, so he was kind of the ringleader of this whole thing. Um, but now, you know, that's not the best way to operate things for for people that want to consume good bread. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So they need that, bakers need that variety. They, they need the flexibility. They want, you know, uh, breads that are, you know, rooted in different parts of the world um, or, you know, are made with different, uh, you know, flavor profiles. And you can't get that from two varieties of American wheat. You have to be able to be a bit more flexible and be able to reach out and find other varieties and, you know, you know be able to have those varieties grown at a scale that makes sense business-wise for a miller, but also is consistent year-round for the baker. I'm very in tune to, um, or we as millers, I should say, um, are very in tune to where and how far our, our grain has to travel to the mill, and then how far the flour, once it's milled, needs to travel to the bakery. That's a component that a lot of people don't pay attention to um, outside of the milling world. And uh, our mills are, you know, strategically placed for that. Um, we're in northern Utah, which is a, is a great hub for grain coming in, but also grain going out. So we can service the entire west coast of America, for example, with exactly the same freight distance. It's not just about local grain. It has to be fresh. Fresh milling, you know, fresh flour. If you have had, you know, mill your own flour versus buy a bag of really even like very good whole grain flour, um, you don't know how long it's been on the store shelves. And the, the flavor is so, it's, it's truly mesmerizing. It's naturally much sweeter also, which is interesting, right? Like you get uh, some, and of course you get such a rich aroma in all your different grains, right? So when you use like buckwheat, freshly milled buckwheat, it's like, oh my God, I don't recognize my pancakes. What happened to my pancakes, right? So it's a, so this is where, where um, fresh milling um, is, is really changing pretty much everything in baking and bakers are recognizing that. And so they're working more and more with local grains, if they can, more and more of his fresh milling. Um, I think a lot of bakers re recognize also that it's that it's such a, creates such a wonderful product. Plunge your hand into a bag of white flour. When cold, it's powdery and pure, like the ski slopes of newly fallen snow. It's transportive, feels of place. But when you see a bag of flour on a supermarket shelf, 
You may ask yourself, how did it get here? Same as it ever was. Well, believe it or not, the Silicon Valley of flour was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, Minneapolis uh, was a city on uh, the Mississippi River, on the, the very top part of the Mississippi. Uh, it had ample uh, uh, power, uh, water power for running mills. And two families, the Crosbys and the Washburns, started mills there. Well, they kept innovating with their mills, and uh, they were innovating around the same time that we had uh, a big railroad network coming. Uh, flour had all been locally milled. You'd grow the flour, and then you'd mill, mill it into whatever you needed right then and there, or you might ship the grain and mill it some other place. But these guys started saying, well, why don't we mill it into flour here, and then we can ship it all over the place already as flour. Big idea. Then they had the idea, let's come up with some improved ways of sifting. So from time immemorial, people would sift their flour. And they'd sift the flour first to take out rocks and big chunks of stuff that really shouldn't be there. Then uh, they'd sift it to take out the bran. The, the reason that bran can be taken out by sifting is that bran is kind of tough and leathery. Whereas the uh, the main part of the kernel, which is called the endosperm, uh, that's a little more fragile. So if you just take a piece of whole, uh, a, a whole wheat kernel and you whack it with a hammer, what you notice is you break the endosperm into lots of little pieces and you break the bran into many fewer pieces. They're bigger. Well, throughout history, people have wanted white bread. A little odd to believe in an era where right now we're obsessed with whole grain breads, but throughout all of history, man, they wanted their bread white, they wanted to get rid of the bran, and the way to do that is sifting. That made white flour much more expensive. Well, the Crosbys and the Washburns and the variety of people who worked with them uh, wound up uh, innovating and creating a whole variety of things. The, the most dramatic one was called the Middlings Separator. So. People figured out that grinding uh, grain into flour all in one go was possible. That's what the earliest mills did. But you actually could be more efficient if you took several passes at it. You milled it to one size, fairly coarse, then you sifted it, and then you milled it again, then you sifted it. Um, Evan's invention helped promote that because you could do multiple passes without carrying all this stuff around manually. Well, the middling separator made it possible to make a white flour that really wasn't much more expensive or any more expensive than whole wheat. Peter Endress is co-owner and head baker at Runner and Stone in Brooklyn, New York. There he incorporates whole grain flours in unexpected ways, unless you're German, of course. You don't have to say, ich bin ein Bratbaker, to know that most rye as we know it is a lie. Believe us, we've tasted the real stuff, and it's transformative. The flavor of rye is often associated with a sour flavor. Like The flavor of rye flour itself is just the same as any, not the same as any, but has a typical whole grain flour flavor, just like a whole wheat uh, might be 
might have a different flavor profile, but it's still, it doesn't necessarily have a sour flavor on its own. It's just that when you bake with rye, you often have to pre-ferment most or all of it. Uh, so you always have a more sour bread. The higher the percentage of rye, the higher the sour content. So the more sour the bread. So I think people associate the flavor of rye with the flavor of rye sour. Um, and then beyond that, a lot of people associate the flavor of rye with caraway, which is a lot of people tell me they don't like rye breads, and what they really don't like is caraway. Yeah. Um, which so we're pretty particular about not putting caraway in actually any of the rye breads we make. Um, the only thing we put caraway in is our rye brownie, and that was just because it was kind of fun to do a rye brownie, and so the caraway actually comes out nice with the chocolate. Francisco Magoya, co-author of Modernist Bread and head chef at the Cooking Lab, believes that the behavior of rye flour is what separates the good rye bread experiences from the bad. It's not all caraway and spice. So it performs differently. It's going to act differently. Um, an, an interesting experiment for people to do with rye flour in general is to just basically take some rye flour, mix it to a paste, and then just rub it on your fingertips. And you're going to see that it creates this almost gel on your fingertips. It's hard to take off. It's, it's one of those things why people prefer to mix rye bread, rye doughs, with a, either by a machine, obviously, which is easier. But if they had to mix without a machine, they usually use a wooden spoon or a rubber spatula because it just it sticks to things. But that is, that is because of all of the, uh, the pentasans that are in there. Those are the starches that are inside rye. One of the first things that you need to see here is that um, typically when you have 100% rye breads, what you're going to have, the surface of the bread is, is cracked. And the reason why the surface of a bread is cracked is because there is no, there's no functional gluten in rye flour. It's not to say that there isn't any. Like if you're celiac, you really shouldn't eat rye breads. But if you're hoping that the gluten in rye flour is going to be sufficient to give you a structure in a dough, you're very wrong. It's not going to happen. Um, there are different things in rye flour that bind everything together. And mostly we're talking about starches, pentasans. Um, rye flour has a huge capacity for absorbing water. It can absorb up to 16 times its weight in water. So what it means is that you can have a dough that is for every part of flour can have 16 parts of water. Um, so that's, that's, that's a huge amount of absorption. Uh, because it absorbs so much water, it is able to have a, uh, like this very moist crumb. It also makes it, because of this water and because it doesn't have the gluten to expand in volume like wheat breads do, they're denser breads. So there is not a huge expectation to have this big open crumb. It's just, that's not going to happen with 100% rye breads. Um, the cracked surface occurs because as the dough is proofing and expanding, it doesn't have that, that, that elasticity that is going to expand the dough at the rate that CO2 uh, bubbles are forming. And so instead of expanding, what is going to happen is the surface is going to crack. But that's okay. I mean, those, those rye breads are supposed to look like that. You're supposed to have this cracked surface. Now, with Austrian rye flour, that happens a little bit less. At Modernist Cuisine, each experiment brings with it the opportunity to work with special ingredients, some that only come around once a year. In regards to Austrian rye, they need access to it much more frequently than an annual shipment from Austria. 
So they had to circumvent tradition in the most celebratory way. And so um, many months went by because it's, it's not easy to get flour shipped from anywhere into the U.S. There's uh, so many regulations that customs will easily refuse flour from anywhere that is not Canada um, or even Mexico. So flour is cheap. Flour is, you know, a 60 kilo bag of, of this flour was 14 euros. Shipping it is insanely expensive because 60 kilos of anything, even if you ship it, um, obviously you can't ship it ground, but if, even if you ship it like for three-day delivery, it costs like 400 euros. So the first time they shipped the flour, um, customs did not receive it. They didn't let, they didn't let it through because... Um, it was, it's not legal to import flour. Um, and so it had to be sent back. And so we not only had to pay a shipment to bring it in, but also to send it back. So it was this ridiculous back and forth with the 60, ba uh, 60 kilo bag of flour, just going over the Atlantic twice for, because we couldn't let it in. So we asked the folks in Austria if they could you know, talk to the USDA and see if there was a way that they could, you know, s not sneak it in, but just get it in. And so they actually found a loophole, which to this day to me is incredible that that actually worked. But what the customs uh, agent told them is that if it's a gift for somebody, it'll come right through. They'll They'll let it right into the country. And so... The next shipping trial, what they did is they wrote a little birthday card that said, Happy birthday, Carla, who is our culinary assistant. Happy birthday, Carla. Happy, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Carla. Happy birthday. Happy and they snuck a birthday card into the bag and wrote in the form that it was a birthday present. And so every month when we get a bag in, there's a birthday card for Carla saying, Happy Birthday, Carla. And that's how we were able to get it in. And it's one of those USDA customs mysteries that fortunately worked in our favor. If you're not Carla and can't get fresh flowers shipped to you monthly, maybe consider milling it yourself. It's the gift that keeps on giving. What is wonderful is that there is more and more, um, you know, equipment for people that want to mill at home is showing up, right? And in America, and um, we have now, um, you know, companies that, like, for example, one... Um, there's, you know, you have different choices. So basically, for example, there is now attachments that you can use um, you can attach these with one, you know, screw to your stand mixer, and then you can mill directly into fresh flour directly into the bowl. Milling isn't for everyone, so why not trust your miller and keep the magic of fresh flour alive? I mean, from what little I know of the milling process, and which I, is what I've learned from either talking to millers or seeing a milling operation or taking like a two-hour informative class on it is that I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> it's its own science that I deeply respect um, and it adds a whole new level of variability to the product so I'm very grateful for the work that you know they do at Farmer Ground Flour in maintaining 
certain parameters so that when the flower gets here, it's already in a range that we know we're going to be able to use it. But um, yeah, the stone ground, I think, just adds a lot more character to the bread. I like being able to, you know, see flecks of bran and germ in the, in the flour we use, uh, and it just tastes better. I never really understood using a white flour and then adding in bran. I mean, I, I understand it. It con certainly controls the process much better, but um, it just seems less holistic. You know, there's so many grains you can use and so many, you know, even if you grind your own, so much variation in the type of, you know, the quality of the bread. You know, like, you know, like rye flour, for example, you can make a really coarse, dense, heavy rye bread that's, you know, like this thick German style thing, or you can grind your flour super light and almost get like a sandwich bread type of texture. Like, so there's, you know, there's so much variation that allows for so many different eating experiences. And if you're making it just simply so many different, you know, the ability to be very creatively expressive with the type of bread you're making. So it's, you know, it's such a great vehicle, you know, beyond just something to eat. <laughs> you know, it allows for a lot of expression for the chef and there's a lot of variation in a, you know, sort of the gustatory experience as you're eating it. An adventurous choice of grain presents the baker with a blank canvas when it comes to recipes. It also tastes great. In terms of the grains you asked, um, I do think rye is trending, you know, um, for one, you know, certainly for its health benefits, but it also has this incredible, um, you know, a quality, especially when you look at the classic Nordic German rye breads that have, um, you know, this, this beautiful density that is just fantastic, extremely nourishing, tears you through the morning when you have a slice of good rye bread, you know, and um, and people are recognizing it's, it's absolutely delicious, right? It has, um, so rye is one. Um, I see a lot of, um, you know, like, like I said earlier, some of these more local weeds like red five, turkey red, um, you know, these are, these are, um, Grain, like wheats that have been, you know, grown traditionally in these areas, and so they are better suited to the local climates, right? So that would be red five, turkey red. Um, also, you have um, uh, Glen and Warthog and Arapaho. These are all wheat varieties that are showing up. You have corn varieties like Floriani red flint corn, which is beautiful i don't know if you've ever seen it it's yeah so you know so you we have like it's all it's a huge transition right now you know and and uh and consumers are noticing it i mean they are definitely picking up on that you know because of the flavor it adds i mean just a plain again coming back to plain white rice how boring <laughs> When it comes to trendy grains, Maria is clearly a tastemaker, and she isn't the only one. You may have heard the fables of a fellow named Glenn Roberts, an evangelist and Lazarus of long-forgotten grains. He's making them trendy again. What's old is new. Well, I think the one of the companies that's leading the way in terms of um, showing 
how there's grain and then there's grain is Anson Mills and Glenn Roberts is one of our speakers at the symposium. They've done a phenomenal job and Glenn in particular at finding uh, heritage grains and seeds that were pretty much lost and, and maybe would have been lost forever had he not recovered enough of them to start, you know, micro crops and then growing them into uh, crops that could actually be commercialized so that then he had to find someone to buy them and use them because they're expensive. And so he started with the chef community. So a lot of these things always start at the high end, you know, chef community. And as it gets traction and you get more and more people able to grow them, they you can get you can make bring it down into the mainstream. So there are now farmers that that Glenn and Anson Mills puts into business, as well as uh, other farmers around the country. Roberts is the founder of Anson Mills in South Carolina, an antebellum artisan mill that supplies organic heirloom grains to the country's, nay, the world's best bakers. He dreams big, but that's okay because his work often takes a little imagination. The idea was to develop flavor uh, density in cereals. What does it take, really? Because I'm looking at everything that the modernist bread uh, research arc was running through and all their practical applications for it, which really resonates with me because to do all the research and then stand there behind the peer review barrier and say, wow, this is really cool, that doesn't get anybody fed. Uh, it's only theory, and it takes massive amount of chefs and bakers to do it. I love their idea of trying to go into the core simplicity of it, to actually make it understandable and actually make it feed people. And in that transformation study, I started working with yeast scientists because I got the idea from Modernist Cuisine, from all that photography, of looking at fields as environments, as a complete environment. And the idea of the yeast time machine came out of my experience at Modernist Cuisine. So I had, it sounds cheesy as hell, but it's true. I had an epiphany, a real one, uh, during those billions of ferment things that they were presenting us with in every form you can think of. I was just stunned. Because frankly, what Steve Jones told me, hey, we're going to go down and like hang at Modernist Cuisine. I said, oh, that's fun. I said, I barely have time to do that. No, no, you need to go do this, right? And I went there. I'm going, oh, I just had a postdoc exposure to really smart people. It was great, right? So that's what started it all for me. And that's the genesis of this cornucopia of bygone grains. Roberts likes to call it the pharmacopia with an F, but that's because he sees his work as a remedy to years of grain neglect. What's more, it's the lack of nutritional wherewithal when it comes to choosing the most proletarian food product in the world. We all have access to it in some form or fashion. Many of us even have the ability to grow it in our own backyards. But its inevitable function as bread is so far removed from the ground, through the mill, and into the baker's flour build, that we have to get back to the land and really dig into what we're truly eating. What is the use? What is the right functionality? And also, more and more, it's it's nutritional density that we're looking at as well. So, so can we can we bring in more iron and zinc and selenium and things like that? And can we bring it in in meaningful ways that people would want to eat these things, these products, whether it's a cookie or a bread or whatever? <clears throat> people need to want to eat them. So we one thing that we work with, and it sounds 
it may sound silly, but we work with deliciousness. So we, we, we make things that are delicious. And to do that, uh, we have to work with chefs and, and bakers and folks like that. And, and all of my students are very good bakers as well. So, so we, all, we all get immersed in the whole, the whole stream of, of what we're doing as opposed to just developing something that works for farmers and then calling it good, right? That might be one, that, that's certainly one model of a plant breeder is hand it off to the farmer and call it good. You know, as opposed to to carrying it through that whole that whole stream or that whole chain. This has been episode two of Modernist Breadcrumbs: The Great Civilizations of Grain, on grain milling and flour. In the next episode, on the rise, we'll be talking about yeast, leavening, and fermentation. Until next time, peace and love.